And as you take your seats, if you take out your swords, that sharp word of God that rightly divides between joint and marrow, soul, spirit, is alive, amen, has the capacity to speak into our lives even today. Uh, though this particular passage was written some 2,600 years ago, uh, it could not be more applicable today than it was when these words were first authored. And so Daniel chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 8, and the remainder of chapter 1 here in a study that I've entitled The Critical Choice. We are, as the body of Christ, and everyone who's ever attempted to be well-pleasing to God, are faced on a regular basis, daily, sometimes hourly, occasionally moment by moment with critical choices. Things that we can look just exactly as Daniel and his three friends did. And we're going to have two general directions we're going to go. And the choice is yours. God not wishing to create us in anything other than his own image has designed us to love him. Uh, has made us in a relationship with him so that we can freely choose what we want to do with the life that he's given us. We are not automatons, we're not robots, we've not been uh, forced into being good. Uh, God could in fact do that, couldn't he? God could actually make us be exactly like, like he wants us to be. The problem with that not only from God's perspective, but ours, is if God simply forced us to be the way he wants us to be, then what would be absent from the relationship between us and him? It'd be love, wouldn't it? Because in order for love to be valid, it must also be volitional. For us to really have a relationship with anyone, we have to choose to be in relationship with them. The only way that that is valid is if there's something to choose. So there has to be an opposite. There must be a choice in order for your relationship with God to be based on love and not simply his sovereignty. Look, let me make it very clear. God is absolutely sovereign and he could force us to do anything at any time, all the time, if he wanted to. But because he does not want that kind of relationship with you, he allows you the freedom of choice. And so our choices are the way that we actually tell God, we love you. We want to be in relationship with you. And so those choices that you make, the choices that I make, the critical choices especially that we will all be forced to to be confronted with, those critical choices are the best way, when you make them God's way, for you to tell God, I love you, I appreciate you, I am concerned about what you're concerned about, and I want our relationship to be as good as it possibly can be. And so we see that beginning, we'll pick up in verse 8 tonight, uh, here in Daniel chapter 1, and a critical choice. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. And we pray that your word now would come alive to us. Lord, help us to hear and understand And Lord, even more importantly, to obey. God, to to be as Daniel and his three friends were, 
in this world. Lord, we live in Babylon as well. And so, God, we would pray that you'd speak into our lives your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 8, here in Daniel chapter 1. But Daniel, underline it, highlight it, circle it, mark it in red, purposed in his heart. That is probably the most important statement that we find here in chapter 1. Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel made a cognizant choice to do what was right in his heart. Now I want you to notice that this doesn't say that Daniel didn't use his mind or that Daniel uh, simply weighed the options and he took the path of least resistance. It says that Daniel purposed in his heart and notice what he purposed in his heart to do that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank and therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself in other words Daniel purposed in his heart that he was going to do what was right in the eyes of God that is always the critical choice. That is the one that you will have to make day in and day out for the rest of your time here on this earth. You are going to have to purpose in your heart to do what God wants you to do versus what might be expedient for you. What might be beneficial in the world's sense. You are going to have exactly these types of choices to make. And you're going to have to decide in your heart whether you are going to defile yourself with the things of this world or whether you are going to stand for what God wants you to stand for. Daniel clearly makes the choice to stand for the Lord. There's no wavering. There's no ifs. Daniel chooses that he will not defile himself. You see, the world can throw mud on you, but the world cannot defile you internally. The choice of that defilement comes from your own heart being in the right place. I I can see all kinds of things. I can experience things. But it is my choice how I let them affect me. What I will do with them. How I'll respond to them. How I'll react to them. And so he says, look, I'm not going to defile myself. And now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? And then you would endanger my head before the king. Now notice the the difference in how the governor if you will or the chief of the eunuchs is responding he's actually worried about his own neck amen he's looking at this is like dude you're going to get me in trouble Uh, it's going to be a problem for me if you don't eat these things you don't drink these things he is worried about himself daniel is worried about what god thinks he's like i'm not going to defile myself and that word means to act in, in discord with what God wants. That's what defilement is. In other words, God has his plans and purposes, and the way one would become unclean, that's what defiled means, is that you would do exactly what the world wants and not do what God wants. 
And so here you have a picture of this type of choice that will have to make a, a critical choice in your own life. You're going to have to choose to tell the truth in that job interview. You're going you're to have to choose. It, it, we, we just had a, a situation. I'll share it with you because my son and my daughter-in-law are not here tonight. So I can share this little bit of family thing with you. That they're in the process of adopting uh, a boy from Korea. And they're well along through the process. And they're with a Christian adoption agency. And they've filled out massive amounts of paperwork. They've undergone psychological examinations. And they've, their finances have been looked at. Their home has been inspected. They've gone through all of these processes. And they get a phone call from their social worker. Their social worker says the government of South Korea has decided that they want to have equality in religion. And so they are asked a question, would you have a problem if your adopted child chooses something other than Christianity? Now bear in mind that in the world that we live in, South Korea is one of the most Christian nations on earth. But the government has decided to include a question that if you have a problem with Christianity in the life of your child, that that may keep you from adopting. Well, they had a choice. And the choice was quite simple. Just say, no, we don't have a problem with that and not mean it. Or answer that question in accordance to the absolute understanding of their heart, which is, yes, we absolutely would have a problem if our child doesn't come to know Jesus Christ because we believe he's the way and the truth and the life. Now, my son's a pastor. That's a critical choice because with all their heart, they, they want to see this adoption go through. But they're forced to, into that position of, who do I appeal to? Do I appeal to God and say, we trust you? You didn't bring us this far to dash our hopes? Or do you appeal to your flesh, which says, well, we'll just tell them what they want to hear? Now, the reason I tell you that is there's probably not a person in this room who isn't going to have like-type circumstances in your life at, from time to time. Now, it may not bring an instantaneous response, but have you purposed in your heart to not defile yourself with anything? With everything. That can be the television you watch, the movies you watch, the friends you have. It can be life experience things like where you might live, the job you might take. There are so many things that go into this category that we as believers have other people watching us because you see this social worker claims to know the Lord. And I have no reason to doubt that. But if you're going to say you're a Christian, you better act like one. Because the voice that you have is supposed to be the voice of the Lord. It's supposed to be speaking into that situation. It, it's not that we say, no, we're, you know, we're, we're just going to act the world's way. You have to purpose in your heart.
Verse 11, and so Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Now, I don't know how many of you actually asked God to test you, but that is in essence what Daniel's saying. Well, test us. See, see if we're not who we say we are. See if, see if we're not exactly the type of person that we claim to be. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink and then let our appearance be examined before you. And the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. Look, here's the, here's the question for you. Are you willing to do what's right when the world says it's beneficial to do what's wrong? They're being offered everything the world has to offer here in that, in that sense. And you are going to be offered that same offer. And I can tell you why, because that was exactly what was offered to Jesus. The kingdoms of this world were offered to Jesus. Unlimited food was offered to Jesus. Power was offered to Jesus. And if the devil is going to try and test Jesus that way, I guarantee you we're going to be tested that way. Because if he thought he could pull, pull that on Jesus, what do you think he thinks about you and I, mere human beings? He says, look, as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Look, we're willing to stand for God at any cost. That's a critical choice. Nebuchadnezzar's looking at these young men, and at the same time, now hear this, he's looking at Yahweh, Lord of hosts. Because the only view that Nebuchadnezzar has of Yahweh, Lord of hosts, is these young men. And the same is true for you. Now, I don't mean to put pressure on you, but the fact of the matter is, the most real Jesus most people are going to meet is you. They're going to get to talk to Jesus by talking to people who love the Lord Jesus, who represent the Lord Jesus, whose hearts, souls, minds are focused on being honoring to the Lord, who know the truth, the truth has set you free, and so you are the perfect people for the Lord to send to people who don't know him. Say, if you want to know what it's like to be a Christian, go talk to my kids. Go talk to my children. And so you bear that responsibility in the world. And this is not new. And this is not going to end with Daniel. It continues, the, the story of the Old Testament is, is this story over and over and over again. And so as you're facing these consequences of, of your decision, you're, you're going to be put in that situation where you could just say, oh, I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm going to do what the world says. It, it's easier. And look, it is easier in that sense. It's easier to cave into the pressure. It's easier for us to just say, well, you know, it's just not worth the fight. I can tell you I've watched pastors make those decisions. It's just, it's just too hard. It's too difficult. The price is high. Jesus gave his life for us. We are to give our lives for him. Now, the good news is we don't have to give our lives eternally because he's already purchased heaven for us. But he has, has asked us to join in the fellowship of his sufferings. He has asked us to be dedicated to kingdom things. And Daniel, even in the Old Testament times, seems to get this. 
Joshua got the same thing. When Joshua was faced, you know, they've, they've come into the land. The, the, the conquest is on. They've finished that conquest. The land has been divided up amongst the 12 tribes, and there's still these battles. And in Joshua 24, verse 11 through 15, it says this, And when you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, the men of Jericho fought against you. Now, where are they going? The children of Israel are entering into the land that God promised to them. And you would think, it's like, well, if you promised it to us, you could give it to us at least easy, don't you think? Anybody ever kind of pondered that in your mind? It's like, first they go into captivity in Egypt, then they're delivered across the Red Sea to wander 40 years in the wilderness, and the first thing that happens when they enter the promised land is they fight war after war after war after war. And here's what it says. And the men of Jericho fought against you, also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Every single corner they turned, there was a battle. And there were choices. You going to give up? You going to give in? You see, in the story of, of the conquest is this. You have these great kings, you have great leaders, and you have bad kings, you have bad leaders. You have people who are willing to stand for the Lord, and you have people who are not willing to stand for the Lord. And every single time when you transfer over into the book of Judges, you hear this phrase, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. They stopped caring what God thought, and they started caring about what the world thought. They stopped caring about what God wanted to do, and they cared about what the world wanted them to do. That's the choice. We're going to face those choices daily. You and I are going to face those choices. Human logic is, you know, Marduk is Nebuchadnezzar's God. We're here in Babylon. You know, let's just do what the Babylonians do. And trust me, I listen, I, I, some of you in this room go through this on a daily basis. You may go through it in your workplace. Maybe you're involved in, in speaking to other people constantly. You know, you, you hear it all the time. I do. It's like, wow, it's just so hard. I mean, I don't know what to do. I mean, everybody's doing it this way. God hasn't asked us to do what everybody else is doing. He's asked us to do what he wants us to do. We're, when we're in Babylon, we're not supposed to be doing what the world is doing in Babylon. That's, that's why Jesus said there in Matthew 5, look, we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. We're supposed to be the preservative. We're supposed to be the illumination for other people. You see, salt's a preservative. It preserves the character. It preserves the nature of God in this world. We are supposed to be salt. And we are supposed to be light. If we turn all the lights out in this room, we're going to have what we would call darkness. Amen? It's not actually totally dark, but it's going to be so dark that most of us are not going to see very well. If we are the light of the world, we are. Now, Jesus is as well, but when he left, he said, now, you are my disciples. I want you to be light in this world. If we make the wrong choices, how much light do we show? 
Not much. If we will not preserve the name of the Lord in this world, how much salt are we going to be? Not much. And so the issue boils down to this issue of choices. What are you going to choose? Are you going to choose situational ethics? Are you going to choose the dictates of modern psychology? And again, this is not against psychology and psychologists. It is simply saying the world has its ways and the world is going to try and force you into a mold that this is the way you should act. This is what you should do. And I can guarantee you a vast majority of what the world says is actually completely godless. Takes God completely out of the picture. If you're unhappy in your marriage, what do you do? You go down to the court and you get a writ of divorce and you cite irreconcilable differences. You want to look that up in your Bibles? If you've got an index, if someone can find me where it says you're supposed to divorce your spouse because of irreconcilable differences, I want to know where that verse is. See, the world says that's what you should do because you need to be happy. Now, it doesn't mean that the Bible says you're supposed to be miserable, but the Bible nowhere says anything other than I, the Lord, hate divorce. For it tarnishes and stains one's garment with violence (laughs) that's what it says so the world says you're unhappy divorce your spouse god's word says if you want to be well pleasing to the lord there is nothing that the lord cannot heal now this is not meant to bring anyone in here under condemnation it's simply to say look here's the world's way the world says well you know you just don't get along anymore you fell out of love The Bible says that you probably had the wrong kind of love in the first place, and that's the reason you fell out of it. So we need to change. These are the types of things that we're going to be forced to make a decision on. And I pray that we're thinking about it. So the question becomes, in that critical choice, what will you actually do? Are you going to conform to the world? Or are you going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Romans 12 says? Are you going to cave in? Are you going to do what the world wants you to do? Or are you going to actually be salt and light? You see, these young men have been educated in the, in the ways of the Babylonians. They're, they're getting an opportunity to hear exactly how great and wonderful the, the Babylonian thinking is. We in our world are being told that there's another way of thinking that's anti-Christ. It's generally phrased as secular humanism. That instead of God being the center of everything, man's the center of everything. That we look at it always from man's perspective. And we secularize it. We take God out of the equation and we just, let's just do our best. Now that sounds great to the logical mind. Until you realize if you take truth out of that equation, you've got nothing left. You've got your opinion and my opinion. And guess which opinion I like best? Mine. Guess which one you like best? Yours. And so we have then majority rule. And so here's what happens in secular humanism. As long as it's popular with the majority, that's truth. We call that relativism. So the truth becomes relativistic and the application becomes situational. 
So as long as I'm in a situation to where I think that applies, it applies. I don't actually have truth anymore. All I do is I sit around, I just find out how many of you agree with me. We join a club and we all say, this is the way it is. Look at your world and tell me that that isn't true in a general sense. That's exactly where we are. That's how we got into the mess that we're in right now. Back in the 1960s, we have sexual liberation. Everybody decides, well, we're making too big a deal out of this. We got a bunch of prudes running the government. So we do away with the fact that pornography used to be a crime, for instance. It was a crime. It was a federal, it was a felony. To produce it, possess it, sell it, it was a crime. But you know what? You know, people like it. And here's the kicker. You can make billions off of it. So it's now not a problem, even though if you talk to anyone who has to deal with this on a regular basis, I will tell you it's a massive problem. It's destroying lives like you can't even imagine. But we sit around and we say, well, it's just a choice. And guess what? It is. But you can make that choice God's way, which says you're not supposed to lust, and that's exactly what pornography does. Or you can make it the world's way. Well, you know, it might help your marriage. (laughs) Am I not right? That is exactly what people will tell you. Well, you know, you just need to spice things up a bit. That's the wrong spice. (laughs) Amen? It's a choice. You have to make a critical choice in life. You see, you could look back at Moses. You go, man, the dude might have got brainwashed, so let's not follow him. I mean, after all, he was, you know, he was in Pharaoh's court, and you know, just kind of like Joseph. I mean, how's that going to work out for us? Look, you, you can go down the road with our university system today. You, you can go down the road with education today. You can say, you know, these things are, are getting in there. But at the end of the day, our university system only has the power that we give it. It can only brainwash you if you're willing to be brainwashed. And so we have to make the right choices. And so those things come up. It's the church that's supposed to stand up and say, no, 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 no. We're not doing that that way. Why did these Jews reject this? You know, after all, you know, wine and all, you know, it's like that wasn't that big of a deal. It was to them. Because God told them no. You see, sometimes I think we make this far more complex than it actually is. When God has spoken, just do it. It's, It's not we wander around, well, you know, I wonder if God was having a good day when he said that. I wonder if really God, you know, God didn't write that now. I mean, things are different now. I mean, he doesn't know how far we've come. I mean, we're so much brighter today, really. How many disciplines of science have been invented in the the last hundred years? Zero. None. Babylonians, responsible for mathematics. The first, most early form of writing that we absolutely know. These were brilliant people. 
but they were taking God out of the equation. We've got to be careful. There's a lot of brilliant people who want to take God out of the equation. And we'll say, well, you know, just, just use your head. When I use my head, you know what I come up with? I need God. Because there's some things I can't figure out. I actually need him. When I put him in the equation, things work. When I take him out, they don't. And if you don't believe that, look at the former Soviet Socialist Republic. Look at what happened under Stalin, Lenin, and Marx. Look at the way the world went. When you took God out of the equation, you want to see where America's heading? Take a tour of the former Soviet states. Because that's what happens. And by the way, part of the communist manifesto is to do away with God. Communism came out of socialism. So when we're talking about socialism here, you're talking about taking God out of the equation. That's where you have to go. These young men put God in the equation. I said, look, we're just not going to do it. You know, the Bible doesn't say, well, just don't have too many appearances of evil. You know, just make sure that your, your sin's kind of a lesser proportion to the things that you do that are kind of godly. Your Bible actually says that we are to make zero provision for the flesh. Not any. None. And that we are not to make any appearance of evil in our lives. And that is exactly how Daniel and his friends lived. They said, look, we're not going to do it. If God might get blame for something we do, we're not doing it. We're going the other direction. They were careful in their liberties. You see, no one would have blamed them if they'd sit there in the banquet hall and they're just eating with King Nebi. You know, they're, they're having a great time. It's party hardy. Look, nobody else is getting this stuff. Why don't we just enjoy it? But they understood that that was a heart issue. That, that was not just simply a choice. It was an issue of heart. So Daniel purposed in his heart. Could have gotten away with it. One of the greatest chuckisms that, that I have personally experienced is the best liberty you will ever have is the one that you choose not to take. You understand how that works? You're at liberty to do a lot of things. But when you defer so that God gets the clearest path to his holiness and glory, when you say, look, I'm not going to do it, there's any chance that God's name would be sullied or muddied or the, the water's not clear so that people can't see God, then I'm not taking that liberty. You put stuff in that category, there's a whole lot of stuff that you end up not doing. Well, you could. Daniel and his three friends could have had this feast. From that standpoint, there is nothing here that they would have been violating God's law. The book of Leviticus would not have condemned them for having wine. The book of Leviticus would have not have condemned them for having meat, unless it was ham. They couldn't have had that, or shellfish. But what's really going on here is they go, 
we would be eating that for the wrong reason. There would be an appearance that we're caving in to the Babylonian ways and we won't do it. That's why Proverbs 9 says, the fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One comes from that. When you have a reverence for God, not a fear like you're afraid of him so much as you recognize who God is. And you say, look, I so honor the Lord that I'm not going to do anything. I'm making no choices that are going to sully my relationship with God or cause anyone to think he's less than holy. They lived an uncompromised life. Another thing that we learn in this passage is that even in Babylon, even in Babylon, God is still on the throne, amen? God's on the throne even in Babylon. God's on the throne in your workplace. And when your heart is right, Everything else is going to be where it needs to be. But if your heart is wrong, you can have all kinds of other things and they're not going to turn out the way God wants them to. It's a heart issue. Can I tell you that as a pastor, virtually everything for me boils down to a heart issue. You know, I'm not in any overt sin that I'm aware of. I'm not wandering around just going, yeah, I don't care what God says on that one. I do. But where I still have to fight that fight is in my heart. It's like I can't even desire those things that aren't pleasing to the Lord. And these guys had a heart that was after God's heart. They wanted to know what God thought about it. And when they understood what God thought about it, that's the direction that they went. And so when my heart, which is the center of my proverbial being, according to scriptures there in Proverbs chapter 4, Above all else, guard your heart for it's a wellspring of life. You want to have a wellspring of life bubbling up out of you, guard your heart. Don't expose your heart to Babylon. You see, you can be in Babylon and not expose your heart to Babylon. You can live in downtown Babylon and still be okay if your heart's right, amen? But if your heart's wrong, you can live in the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? You could live in this building with a wrong heart and you were going to be in Babylon whether you want to be in Babylon or not. If your heart is not right before the Lord, you'll figure out a way to do your thing. To dwell in sin. As, As I've shared with some of you personally, some of the most messed up, absolutely totally against God people I have ever met have been ministry kids. Children that grew up in the church, born in the church, raised in the church, either Christian schooled or homeschooled their entire life. But that was a substitute for a personal relationship with the Lord and their hearts were not right. And because their hearts were not right, the moment they got an opportunity to head towards sin, they did. It was a heart issue. It was not a parenting issue in that sense. It was a personal heart issue. Your heart must be right. Otherwise, you'll live a Babylonian life anyway, no matter where you actually reside. 
These four youths had, had hidden their God's word in their heart. And, and just as faithful Jews will repeat even today in the Shema, and they're in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these commandments I give you today that they would be upon your heart. The focus in the Shema is on the heart. It's like make your heart right. Because you can think correctly and not have a right heart. Your decisions, when they're commendable, will bring about consequent blessings. Your decisions, when they're commendable, in other words, they're the right decisions according to the heart that God has for you, are going to bring about consequent blessing. Verse 14, notice how it continues. And so he consented with them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in the flesh than all the young men who ate a portion of the king's delicacies. Now to put this into perspective, this is, this is the, imagine you have, you have one group of people and they eat at In-N-Out, Outback Steakhouse. Anybody hungry? I'm probably messing with some of you. And, and they're getting the ribeye with the fat still on it. And then you got the vegan dudes who are eating grass juice. Now, there's no fat in, in, in liquid grass in a cup. And there's lots of fat. And, and basically what the scripture is saying here is it's as if they had tasted of the delicacies, but they had given themselves over to be vegetarians. In other words, God did for them a beautiful work of keeping them happy and, and not gaunt. There, there wasn't anything they lacked. They weren't sitting around looking at the king's delicacies going, oh man, I can't believe we didn't get that. And thus the steward took away their portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And bear in mind, this is in modern day Iraq. So vegetables back then were not what you, there was no, you know, like julienne squash and those types of things in there. You're talking about a very meager diet. Probably, we would call it, in pirate vernacular, they gave them gruel, you know. I mean, it was, this was not a good thing. Gave them vegetables. And as for the four young men, God gave them knowledge. Look what the trade-off is. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They resisted the temptation to live like Babylonians, and here's what they got. God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And now at the end of days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar the king. And then the king interviewed them. And among them all none was found so he brings in both sides the group that's been feasting with the king and these four young men remember they're teenagers and if you've ever tried to feed a teenager try turning a 16 year old boy into a vegan it is not an easy thing it just not i mean there's no amount of stacking up tofu to make it look like a turkey that replaces a turkey in the eyes of a 16 year old boy 
None were found like them. Like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah. And therefore they served before the king. In other words, they came out better. They came out better than the kids that caved in. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. This is how the Lord works. This is what God does in our lives. And these these young men graduate in that sense. They, They have this blessing of the Lord. Why did they get that? Because they feared the Lord first. Why did they have the knowledge? Because they feared the Lord first. Why did they have the wisdom? Because they feared the Lord first. Why were they well-versed in matters of science? Now, to put this into perspective, science itself as disciplines began essentially in Egypt. But as far as the Babylonians, you have the birth, birthplace of mathematics, metallurgy, uh, anatomy, astronomy, The Babylonians were the first to give the exact measurements of the lunar and solar cycles. They were the first ones to trace the paths of the planets. Uh, They were the first ones to discover that the earth was on an arc of 360 degrees, that they knew that the horizon was actually curved. The Babylonians didn't believe in a flat earth, okay? When much of the world still believed in a flat earth. These were brilliant people. And so here's these four young men who are sitting there absorbing all of this. And guess what they're going to do with it? They're going to honor God. And so while it was a difficult choice to make, God actually blessed them in the middle of the difficulty. And if our heart is right, that's what God does. He blesses us in the middle of these difficulties. And so Daniel knows Hebrew, I'm sure. And he's probably learning what we call Aramaic, which is a Paleo-Hebraic language. And he's learning Babylonian. He's learning to write in cuneiform. All this knowledge is being poured into these young men. And they're going to take that knowledge. It's going to be a benefit to the Jewish people, ultimately. Sometimes we wonder how the Jewish people have created so many Nobel laureates. How they've ended up on the forefront of so many disciplines of science. I wonder if it didn't begin with these guys. I wonder if the story when we get to heaven. Oh yeah, the reason that the Jewish people are like that. The reason that they're so well versed in these things. Is because Daniel dared to stand. Meshach, Azariah. These guys are are like, we're not going the humanistic way. We're going to follow God. And we're going to learn. We're going to absorb everything we possibly can. Daniel meets the the criteria of the king in such an amazing way that the king's going, man, who wouldn't want these guys in your court? You know, sometimes when you will look at what God's doing in your life and just simply acknowledge who he is, Ultimately, you end up getting that promotion that you don't think you're going to get because you're a Christian. You not only get that promotion, but you end up on the top of the heap above everybody else. And the secret to that is following what God wants you to do. Because he's the one that exalts kings. He's the one that lifts up kingdoms. He's the one that ultimately is in charge of all things, isn't he? If God is sovereign, then doesn't he have the ability to do whatever he wants to do? 
You, you see, but our, our flesh says, nah, I kind of want to, you know, I, I don't want to make any waves. I, I don't want to cause any problems. And so Daniel and his friends graduate. Verse 21, and I want to touch on this just briefly and kind of give you a little bit of a heads up of where we're going. And the power of prophecy, verse 21, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now understand that Daniel has no idea that King Cyrus is coming. But he gets a prophetic vision from the Lord that the next king he's going to deal with is going to be the great King Cyrus, the Mede, the Persian. And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar is actually married to a Persian woman. So he's going to be all tied in. So when we get to the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, when we find out that the Lord has been mapping out the journey for the children of Israel, even when they're in Babylon in captivity, these things are prophetic events. And I want to just touch on a couple of things before we wrap tonight up. The statement here is, is a is really typical of an interpretation. And as Daniel is kind of typifying the, the, the Jewish exiles in their totality, and, and he's going to be remaining in captivity until Cyrus becomes king, you're kind of wondering what God's doing here. And I want to give you just a few things to chew on. All scripture, and it does not matter what you're talking about, all scripture has a primary interpretation. In other words, God clearly meant to say something. Because all scripture is authored by God, amen? And it's suitable for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So if all scripture is authored by God, then God was trying to say something. And so the interpretation of it, what we call hermeneutics, in other words, drawing out from the text via exegesis, taking the text and finding out what it actually says, there is an interpretation of everything that's the primary interpretation. God was trying to say something, this is what he said. But there are all kinds of applications to the interpretation. And the reason this is important is sometimes we confuse those things. Application is not necessarily interpretation. Sometimes they can be the same. But there are all kinds of applications. In other words, we're applying an Old Testament passage of Scripture to our daily lives today. That's not what was actually said originally, but it is the original intent and meaning. In other words, the meaning was Daniel purposed in his heart that he was going to follow the Lord. Amen? So an application of that is Pastor Jeff needs to purpose in his heart to follow the Lord. There's an application of that prophetic vision. And on top of that, the Bible may likely be revealing something that is going to be yet future to all of us. And that is the case for the entirety of the book of Daniel. And it gets deeply prophetic. And, and so we'll have the one interpretation. We'll have some consequent application. But ultimately, there's something that hasn't happened yet. It's pointing to the future. So when we look at our world and we begin to read some of the other prophetic works, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, the book of Revelation, guess what? People have been forced to make critical choices throughout all time, and there's going to come a time when those critical choices are going to be life-altering. 
in the very last days. Jesus himself refers to the times of the Gentiles, which we're going to have come into view here very shortly in the book of Daniel. This time when the age of grace would ensue. And Jesus is speaking in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke 21. He's he's referring to the very last days. Days that are still future for us. He says, they'll fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Daniel is going to get a preview of the major, what we would call uh, the nations of the earth. Or very specifically, the ruling governments of the earth for the entirety of human history. We're going to actually see that in the book of Daniel. Up into our very day. And so as Daniel is setting the stage here, we need to know what kind of character he has. Because he's going to be speaking about history that has already existed. We're going to learn about the Greek Empire. You're going to learn about Alexander the Great. You're going to look at the Roman Empire and all of the Caesars. You're going to look at the reformed Roman Empire, which I believe is largely the European Union. You're going to see that Daniel actually saw all of these empires. This was a young man who had his eyes on the Lord and God showed him things that he has not shown anyone else before or since. That's why Daniel has to be a young man of impeccable character. He is one of those guys that you look at and go, man, I, I, I hope that I can dare to be as Daniel is. And so these first six chapters are going to be foreshadowing the future people and events that are going to happen. And we'll see them one empire after another. The Media Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the reconstituted Roman Empire, the Empire of the Antichrist, which is still yet to come. And Daniel gets a vision for those things. Now, as we embark on that journey... You're going to say, wow, you know, how do we know that? Well, as we begin to unwind what Daniel was shown, because he was a young man that said, I have purposed in my heart to not defile myself, God showed him things that he hasn't shown other people. And so the secret to understanding the will of God is to be as little like the world as you possibly can and as much like the Lord as you possibly can. And that's where Daniel was. That's what he did. He said, look, I don't want to be like Babylon. I want to be like the Lord Most High. And so God showed him these things. That's the power of the, of the prophetic word, which we're going to embark on this incredible journey over the next several months. We have the proper application and the correct prophetic view. And so when you look at these Things that are going to be unfolding in chapter 2. They begin there. God has consistently placed prophetic word throughout his history of dealing with mankind on this earth. Joseph, we learned in our study through the book of Genesis, was a type of Jesus, a type of Christ. Amen? Moses is a type of a king. 
He was the supreme ruler. He is the one to whom the the Jewish people, you have perhaps as many as two million people wandering around in the Sinai Peninsula led by exactly one guy. And they survived for 40 years. You talk about a great king. And Daniel is going to be a picture of a prophet. Someone who would speak for the Lord and speak not only in the present time, but also in the future. And there's an interesting thing when you look at these three men. Moses rejected Egypt's riches. Moses said no to the possessions of the earth. Potiphar, or Joseph, rejected Potiphar's wife. Joseph rejected the passions of this world. He said, "Mm -mm -mm -mm, no, not doing that. And Daniel is going to reject the king's delicacies and the king's food, the king's wine. Daniel is going to reject all of the riches that this world has to offer. And so power, passion, and possession. The three things that 1 John tells us were not to be drawn away. We're to resist those three things. The three areas that Jesus was tested in himself. And so when we look at the word of God going forward in this amazing book, we're going to find, just as Hebrews 11 says, that Daniel was kind of the life that we can look back to, to our own critical choices. We can look back to Daniel and go, what would Daniel do? How, how can I reflect on what Daniel did during that time? Because the truth is, making critical choices is never easy. It's difficult. It's hard. There's a price to be paid. It was hard for Joseph. It was hard for Moses. It was hard for Daniel. But ultimately, what happened is they're endowed with supernatural wisdom. They're, giving, they're given information that other people don't have. And the reason they got those things is they rejected what the world had to offer and said, Lord, we want what you want for us. And so as we look at Daniel's life going forward, as we think on who he really is, when we put ourselves into his place, here in this first chapter, at first there in the eighth verse, we see that Daniel resolved in his heart that the conflict was resolved. He says, look, I want what God wants. And then we see here in the 21st that Daniel remained. He, he was going to be faithful to God. And those two words pop up for us all the time. Are, are we going to resolve the issue in our heart, say I'm going to be pleasing to God, and are we going to remain faithful to the Lord? Because you're going to have to repeat this process. It's not a once and for all thing. You don't just wake up one day and, okay, I'm eternally faithful. Because as human beings, we're incapable of doing that. We, we need that infilling of the Spirit. We need God's work in our life. Daniel rests in the power of God like I believe no other Old Testament character does. He just is, When you read his story, everyone else, there's kind of like little glitches along the way. There's moments in time where you just go, man, I can't believe God used Abraham. Joseph is the same story. He's not perfect either. But when you look at Daniel, Daniel is an example of a young man who grasped what it meant to make the right choices all the time before the Lord. And his life bears witness. It's marked 
by a, by a life that is lived out that is without blemish. We don't see Daniel stumble. That's a model for each of us. And the question is, are we going to dare to be Daniels? Are, are we going to, as Paul wrote to the Roman church, in view of God's mercy, present our bodies to be living sacrifices? Are we going to be willing to go into the lion's den? Are we going to be willing to go into the furnace? Are we going to be willing to surrender to not be conformed to this world? Or are we going to have the fear of the Lord which leads to that knowledge and wisdom and understanding? Are we going to be separated from this world or are we going to be separated by this world from God? Are we going to be separated, set apart for God, or are we going to be separated from God and placed into this world? The choice is ours. And as Joshua said there in Joshua 24, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Make those choices wisely. Consider the Lord and do what he says. It's the path to blessing. May seem like it's the hard road, but it is absolutely the best road. Stare to be Daniels, amen? Father, thank you. Lord, we just bless your name. We thank you for the example that Daniel is. Lord, just steadfast and movable and always abounding. Lord, exactly as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. That that labor of love that he had for you was not in vain. And God, you blessed him. You blessed his beginning. You blessed his middle and you blessed his end. And you used him from start to finish as a man that we could look back on and go, I want to be like Daniel. And so, Lord, thank you for the example that he set to be men and women who are unyielding to the world, unashamed and unafraid to not compromise. Lord, bless us. Keep us, God. We need your keeping grace. Lord, thank you for your saving grace. We need your sanctifying grace and your keeping grace in our lives as well. And so we bless you. We give you tonight, Lord, just fill us up afresh for this week that lies ahead and help us to make those critical choices in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.